Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, you are listening to Wikipedia. I am Mickey, and Welcome to this week's episode. Now, I am super stoked to bring back one of my heroes. Uh, He would be the OG in low carb and aerobic training for health and performance, Dr. Phil Maffetone. Now, Dr. Phil Maffetone and Paul Lawson first appeared on Wikipedia in episode three when we talked about the COVID pandemic meeting the overfat pandemic and their paper on metabolic health. And I subsequently talked again to Paul Lawson on his sort of area of expertise on exercise physiology. And I really wanted to bring Dr. Phil Maffetone back on the show to chat about him pioneering the way, if you like, for low carbohydrate living for health and performance, and particularly in that athletic space, because it is just so intermixed. So on today's show, we chat about Dr. Phil's entry into the space from his sort of college university years and how he transitioned over to a lower carb approach, how he saw subsequently the benefits of these for his athletes, which then made him one of the most sought after practitioners with regards to health and performance in the endurance space. And not just endurance as well, as Dr. Maffetone has worked with a number of different athletes. So we chat all about that. And I also get a little bit of an update from him on his research or understanding of COVID and and whether any of that has changed over time. So we originally recorded this in August of this year, right at the start of the lockdown. So you'll notice that when we have our sort of initial conversation. Uh, However, of course, the main guts of this interview is around Dr. Phil's professional work in and around the MAF, which is Maximum Aerobic Function Training, which he developed and still uses to this day, which combines exercise, nutrition and stress to build your aerobic system. And that's the fat burning engine responsible for fueling all of the body's needs in both health and performance. So we do a big deep dive into how Phil sort of developed and has utilised the math method over the years. And just to remind you about Dr. Phil Maffetone, if you're unfamiliar, he is schooled in physiology, kinesiology and nutrition and he is one of the most sought after practitioners in health and performance. He's worked with world-class athletes and entrepreneurs, musicians and others helping them achieve better health and world-class performances. And this includes Mark Allen, who is a six-time Hawaii Ironman triathlon champion. He's also worked with other endurance athletes of all types, professional baseball and football players, adventurers, NASCAR drivers, and Olympic medalists in a variety of sports. He is an internationally recognized researcher, educator, clinician, and author in the field of nutrition, exercise and sports medicine and biofeedback and we're going to put his link as to where you can find Phil which is at philmaffetone.com and you'll find that in the show notes and also a specific link to his 14 day carbohydrate challenge and we talk about that in this episode today. 
Before jumping on into the interview, I'd just like to remind you that the best way that you can support this podcast is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, sharing with your friend and leaving a five-star review. That would be amazing. And outside of that, if you want to support us bringing you the podcast, then signing up to the Recipe Access portal on mickeywillardin.com, my website, which provides you with access to over 600 recipes and that is frequently updated on an almost weekly basis and access to my weekly email, to our member-only forums on a Tuesday and member-only Facebook Lives. So if that sounds like a bit of you, then absolutely jump on. However, for now, please enjoy this conversation that I had with Phil Maffetone. And this is a particular shout-out as well to Tom Wallace, who is massive fan of Phil Maffetone and a massive fan of Wikipedia. I love it. So, Tom, this is for you. Enjoy the episode. Exactly. We are on. (laughs) And I'm thinking a bit about stress right now, Phil, just because we're actually, we've just gone back into lockdown at our highest level here in New Zealand. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. And up until Tuesday, COVID wasn't really on the radar, actually. Like I say that though, last week, uh, one of our ministers did a press release or a press conference and he said, as soon as Delta hits the community, it will only be one case and we'll be back into lockdown level four. So that sort of got everyone's ears sort of pricked and kind of like, oh, I wonder why he's saying that. At the minute, it's rampaging in Australia. And we have had a travel bubble with Australia that has subsequently you know, closed down. So there was this presumption that it was only going to be a matter of time. And what do you know, a week later, we are back into lockdown level four. So I think about stress for people in just the last, what, 20 months or 18 months and just what COVID has done to the sort of underlying stress that we're all experiencing. You know, the pandemic has created uh, massive stress and uh, in particular, um, and and I just read the, the JAMA study that just came out a couple of days ago. Very deceptive, but very interesting. They showed that 67% of children um, eat junk food, or, or rather, um, the foods children eat, are, are 67% of, of it is junk food. But if you really look at the fine print, they didn't count a lot of junk food because they were only looking at one category and was really over 90%. Well, yeah. what COVID has done, um, and this, this study... Um, ended right before COVID. What COVID did in the lockdowns and the quarantines and uh, the work from home and school from home and all, all of that stuff is that it made people eat more junk food. And there are studies out that show, you know, um, people have gained weight, people have um, gotten stress-related conditions, um, and and this is one of the consequences that isn't talked about a whole lot as a result of of COVID. So interesting, isn't it? And and that reminds me of so on the Wednesday morning, so it's Friday now. Wednesday morning I just went for the little walk around the block that you do because otherwise you will never leave your house. And uh, I walked past one of our neighbours who had obviously just gone to the supermarket. It was about eight o'clock in the morning and bringing out of the bit of their car um, crisps, like three or four packets of crisps. And there was ice cream and there was all of this, all of this, well, 
junk food in the junk food category, notwithstanding the usual grocery items that probably both you and I would consider, um, you know, nutrient poor as opposed to, you know, the healthy sort of diet. And this is what, this is what stress does, right? It's sort of, it's almost like we get blinkers or we get panic stations and we forget the behaviors that actually make us feel good. And you sort of just go towards the things which in the moment bring you pleasure. I think about Robert Lustig when I when I talk like this actually because he defines pleasure and happiness and that sort of instant gratification versus the long term what's actually going to make you happy. Yeah, yeah, and and you know Paul and I you know this uh, we we published a study um a few years ago talking about system 1 system 2 and and how the brain how people and their brains in particular, decide what to follow regarding diets, regarding exercise routines, regarding, you know, whatever, health and fitness related uh, decisions that they make. And the quick fix uh, decisions are the ones most people make. You hear you hear a little blurb, you know, lose 10 pounds in, in one week. Oh, I'll do that. I'll you just tell me what to do. R- run your fastest marathon with these five workouts. Okay, I'll, I could do that. Anybody could do that. Rather than, oh, 10 pounds in one week. Well, what do I have to do? Is that going to be good for me? Um, you know, and and this is a this is a serious problem. And this is our our one of our big social stresses that exists that are really affecting people. And, and, you know, I always have, I, I don't know why I still have to do this, I feel, but when I use the word stress, I'm talking about the full spectrum of stress, which are physical stresses, biochemical and mental, emotional stresses. They're all stress and they're all mm. combined and they all affect our brain. Stress is stress in a sense. Uh, this is, you know, in in a in a real sense, this is the 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 cause of of uh, all our health and fitness problems, all these different mm. stresses. So interesting, Phil. Are you able to just sort of outline for people who haven't seen your study, and I'll link to it in our show notes, the that system one, system two sort of model? Because I found it super interesting when I was listening to you on uh, Peter Atia's podcast. Um, at the start of the year and also just um, most recently. Yeah, and it was something I, I, I got caught up in in my career because I would, I would explain things to patients um, about, um, you know, eating. Uh, we want to personalize the way you eat. I, I don't give diets and, and, and it's important that you eat for your particular needs. And then I talk about what we found in the blood tests and in the dietary analysis and whatever. You know, as here's how I um, progressed through this process where I could then make personalized recommendations. And they'll just, it'll just go over there. As simple as I made it, it'll just go over their head in most um, patients. And they'll say, but I thought the low calorie diet was the best or the low fat diet. That's what my friend told me, you know. And then I have to go back and say, look, your brain really wants to um, make changes quickly and that'll happen, Mm -hmm. but you still have to personalize, blah, blah, blah. And then one day I just, I I was looking at, uh, the work of um, 
an economist, actually, who had written something about system one, system two in the field of economy. And he had gotten that information from someone in the field of psychology who developed this um, idea that the brain uses these two systems, the simplistic simplistic system one, where we are just um, captured by the headlines. You know, we lose 10 pounds in one week and we don't think about it. We're, we're not supposed to think about it. We're just supposed to say, okay, I, I want to buy that. And then the the other part where we we really have to use our brains and and rationalize um, what this is is all about. And I thought, well, that's gee, that's exactly what I've gone through, and um, this would be a fun thing to write about. And I was going to write a just a simple article like I do um, that comes out every week, I think now still. And and I thought, no, this this could be a good study for a, a scientific journal. And I mentioned it to Paul. And of course, Paul, <laughs> Paul is so great to work with. Um, yeah. And so I, I wrote it up and sent it to him. And he said, oh, this is great. And we went back and forth with it and got accepted in Frontiers uh, of Public Health, I think. Mm. I mean, it's a public health issue. Yeah. Uh, because as we know, these, these system one, these diets that people grab for for a while then they it doesn't work and then they grab another one or the 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 big um you know workout programs that everybody's on or the gym workout this cookie cutter um off the shelf program that everybody follows it doesn't work so you either get hurt or you get frustrated and you try another one and and there there's a a brain relationship there that's very, very important for people to understand. It's it's selling the steak uh, or it's selling the sizzle, not the steak. That's what they say in mm. marketing. That's been like, I think since I was a kid, I, I heard that for the first time. So, mm. You know, you don't sell the steak, you sell the sizzle. There's an emotional connection you want to make yeah. with the person and get them to make a snap decision, even though it's not right for them. We don't care because we're selling it. And we've yeah. succeeded now. And not only that, but they'll come back as a customer again because it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. And isn't it interesting because if I, like you're thinking about it and, and talking about it in terms of diet and exercise, and I, I think about it just because this is where my head is at right now in terms of COVID and what we're told and what and the way that we're told it and so many of the techniques used by the news agencies by the by the public health agencies which are getting us to respond and act in a certain way are geared towards I feel like in some part of that system one that you're talking about to sort of um, ignite that like the like the music or the the jingle that they use to announce that it's going to be a COVID-19 announcement. Even yes. even that sort of makes our ears go so a, a little bit of a panic. And then you've got the red kind of breaking news um, uh, kind of thing rolling on the New Zealand Herald website and all websites, you know, this is do, breaking. Do they really have new. those or, or did you just make that up? <laughs> I mean, do they have these yeah. jingles that like, hey, this is oh. a you know. No, 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 they do. That's like, really? it's, wow. yeah, yeah. And now we all recognize it and we recognize the lady's voice and, you know, we know what she's going to, to talk to us about. It just heightens your slight, it's a slight, but sort of 
panic and particularly now compared to say a couple of months ago when the message was just you know um or whatever they were saying I don't know I tuned out actually after a while and now in the uh herald they've got um running along the top once COVID wasn't really um so salient I mean of course it is now but you know I'm thinking two weeks ago they started putting up their vaccination statistics how many of the population had had one how many had had two and so we could see it day by day change the way that they do with COVID numbers I just find it so interesting it's like um you know the sport sports news you know this team won two to one and, yes. and so and so got a you know um, yeah, you know, the, the problem uh, among the problems is that many of the things, many of the recommendations, many of the things that people are, people are given, like what you just mentioned, come from politicians. And politicians, they're a system one program. They, they yeah. don't want to give you details. They just say, do this because yep. it's really good for you. Do that. It's really good for the children. Do this. It's good for, you know, grandma. And politicians, of course, they don't lie, you know. No. And they have, their, they have their style and they use jingles and they, you know. Um, and so I have a problem when politicians start saying, oh, we don't have to, we don't have to run the vaccines through um, a process of making sure they're safe. Oh, we don't mm. have to, we don't have to, you know, we can just recommend that everybody do this, that, and that, and you have to do it. And, yeah. and it's become a situation where you, you almost, I don't go out much <laughs> because there's so much stress out there. But sometimes, you know, when you're out there, you hear people talking and if you say something, or if you're not wearing a mask, or if you are wearing a mask, it infers some kind of political affiliation. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know. I, I rely on my kids to tell me these things because I don't. I don't watch the news. But yeah. um, it's really got. You know, that's just that's just shameful. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's interesting. I was just reading a post from um, someone I follow, Chris Masterjohn, who is a very intellectual. And in, in very sort of straight up, you know, he's not tied to any particular agenda. And um, he just posted that in New York City, they've just mandated that you need a vaccine passport to go to your gym and to go to playgrounds like kids need them and, and things like that. So you need to prove that you have been vaccinated in order to do this. Notwithstanding the thousands of people who have had COVID, he's had COVID twice, I believe, and have natural immunity. So he hasn't been vaccinated yet. Of course, the natural immunity should protect him and protect others, as I understand it. I might be wrong, uh, more than the vaccine would. But now... It, it, it should. You're right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, so, so there's, natural, there's natural immunity, which we all acquire... Uh, if we're relatively healthy, um, very quickly. And that's mm. where, you know, herd immunity comes from. People have heard that term, herd immunity, because we're exposed to these things. They're all around us all the time. It doesn't take very long. And our immune system, when it's healthy, we can, we can come back to that because that's a big mm. if. Um, if we're healthy, our immune system creates these natural antibodies 
And you can actually measure them. You could do a blood test. If you want to know if you're immune and if you need a vaccine, um, you can get a blood test. You can measure your uh, COVID titers and mm. see if, if you've acquired natural immunity, just like all the childhood diseases. If, mm. if you want to know if you're immune to measles, do a, a titer uh, mm. and measure your, your levels of antibodies. And so um, if you're immune, naturally immune, then you shouldn't need to be vaccinated. If you're not immune, then you're vulnerable. Then you either should stay home um, or get vaccinated. Yeah. The vaccination doesn't guarantee that you will be, that it's going to work. And mm -hmm. one of the things that Paul and I wrote in our new paper, which we just submitted, this is the second COVID paper we wrote, um, we, we sort of uh, mentioned this in our first paper last spring, a year ago, a year, a year and a few months ago, that people who have excess body fat don't respond to immunization, to vaccination. All this testing they're doing, I'm, I'm not opposed to all of it, except the way they're doing it. Really, the best thing to do is to, is to measure people's antibodies, to measure their, their tighter levels to see if, uh, for example, if they need immunity because they don't have natural immunity. And those are going to be the, mm. the, the unhealthiest people. And yeah. two, if... If they have gotten the vaccine, is it effective? Is it helping them? Mm. Why in the world would you want a booster if the first one didn't work? Yeah, interesting. You're, I you're was chatting to for, someone. Yeah, you're asking for trouble. And she was saying that getting those um, antibody tests are actually now very difficult to get a hold of because she hasn't been vaccinated. She's had COVID. Her children, she suspects, had COVID but never got them tested. But she's not very she's very wary about she she's not an anti-vaxxer at all she's got all of her immunity shots from the um for the children across their lifespan but she's like you know it's really difficult to get the test to to um, establish whether or not they've got natural immunity as a sort of i don't know as a measure to show so it's just so interesting, Phil. And what I find extremely interesting, and I was thinking about this on my run this morning, is that it's been almost a year since we spoke last about your initial paper, COVID-19, and um, that you wrote with Paul. And I just wonder how things, how, has our knowledge based around metabolic health and COVID, has it changed at all? Has there been anything that would make you um, think of other things that are important or or lessen the importance of what you initially thought? You know, like, do you, any updates? Lots of updates. That's what the new paper is about. And there are a lot of updates. I mean, it's been over a year. We know more about COVID today than we did back then. But there's still an awful lot we don't know about COVID because the, mm. the data hasn't been crunched yet. The, the data is still coming in. Um, there are things that, you know, people haven't even thought about. Um, why aren't we measuring large numbers of, of titer levels in people to give us a better view of what's going on? And I suspect one reason is because they're not going to like what they find. Um, yeah. when, you know, here in the U S and, and, and in New Zealand, it's, it's, um, only a little bit less, but the study we did a, 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 
a few years ago showed that 91% of American adults were over fat. Mm. And if you do a tighter, uh, if you measure um, COVID antibody levels in those individuals, you, you're going to get a lot of people who don't have natural immunity. And if they've been vaccinated, they may not have artificial immunity either. Mm. That's the problem. And nobody wants to, at least they're talking about it a little bit now um, since our first paper came out, but nobody's doing much about it. Certainly the public health and the politicians are not doing anything about it. It could become a nightmare for them. They could have, have, they'd have to admit, you know, we've done things wrong. And a big part of our paper, the paper we just finished, is saying, look, this, this pandemic was predicted. Mm. This pandemic was preventable. There's mm. no question about either of those. And so... Let's rethink this situation. What are we going to do now with all that we've learned to prevent the next pandemic? Mm. And this is not, this is just is not happening. And, and of course, uh, I, I, you know, I have the same, this, the same ending of, of my, my story when I talk about this, which is, um, it's not the same old thing. It's a very important thing, which is that we as individuals can actually take the responsibility and and deal with the problem ourselves in in a in a in a healthy way, rather than wait for the government, um, public health uh, people, uh, you know, the insurance people. I mean, a, a lot of uh, healthcare here in the U.S. is is dictated by insurance companies and then uh, places that have, um, you know, where everybody's covered because of a national policy or whatever. It's the same problem. There, there are rules. You, you can have this test, but you can't have that test. You know, it's just, it's really sad. Again, I, I go back to the, the problem when politicians um, take charge, you know, they're, mm. they're not, they're not the doctors here. No. And Phil, what is it about carrying excess body fat that lowers the immune response? Well, body fat is a um, highly metabolic active tissue. We, we need body fat to be healthy. There's, there's a certain amount of, of body fat we need. And if we're uh, above that or below that, if we're over fat or under fat, then we are, uh, then we have sick fat. They actually call it sick fat syndrome. Uh, but we have uh, unhealthy body fat and therefore an unhealthy body. Among the problems is that we develop chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is the precursor to chronic disease, heart disease, cancer, um, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and so forth. But chronic disease also promotes the risk of infection, bacterial, mm. uh, any microbial infection. So um, it's no surprise that there's a worldwide pandemic because 80% or more of the world is over fat. So we're vulnerable. So if that's the, the cause of the high risk, uh, why aren't we addressing the cause? And um, that's the big question for the, the politicians. 
That is, and and that's the that's the thing, right? So the the public health message hasn't actually changed at all over the last year. And I'm not saying that it's not a good idea to. I mean, I don't. You know, wear absolutely wear masks, wash your hands, do all that thing, social distance where required. Although that mask wearing thing, quite interesting. And as an aside, I just was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago when Baz and I were in a pub downtown after work for a drink and a snack, and it was heaving. There were like 400 people, couldn't barely move, um, no masks required, yet got on the ferry to go home, requiring a mask on public transport, and there were like 10 people in this ferry, and you're getting looks from people because I had a buff, not a mask, and I just had it sort of above, but was also sort of just like drinking or whatever so um <laughs> had my water bottle um and just the looks you got from people and it just it's it's a hard one to get right I think be, from a politician perspective and a policy perspective because there's no logic in what I've just told you you know no problem at all going to a, a you know really busy uh pub but absolutely put your mask on if you're in an almost deserted ferry yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, Phil, you know, you've got over 40 years practical experience in this. And I'm really interested to, to sort of talk to you a little bit about but your background, like how it was that you sort of developed your thinking around it and who influenced that for you? Because you've been such a big influence to so many practitioners over the years. I wonder whether you also had mentors and, and people that sort of help steer you in this direction or was it just your own observation and experience do you want to kick us off with that sure um gosh I don't you know I could go back and start thanking my mother and my I think it, it was that I learned all the traditional things in school and also while I was in school I realized that this isn't going to work eating eating a, a a diet that's got a lot of junk food, isn't healthy. So mm. uh, what is all this low-fat stuff and low-calorie stuff? And why are there so many diets that come and go? And, you know, by this time, the overfat pandemic was beginning to explode. And I was early in practice. I was starting in the 70s. I was starting to see uh, runners and other athletes who worked out a lot uh, mm. come in and they had excess body fat. It was a little harder to measure. We didn't have DEXA. We didn't have the simple waist-to-height ratio, which is the best thing that everybody can do at home. And I actually had a, um, among the many things I had in my office, um, I had somebody come in on a regular basis who who set up a, a water weight gadget where mm. people could get into this pool and weigh themselves underwater and determine uh, accurately determine um body fat percentage. And hmm. so it was putting two and two together. Okay, this this um, this person is running uh, a certain amount every week and eating a certain amount and by calories in, calories out, they should not have excess body fat. Yeah. Um, and w what's this all about? And, and by that point, I, I sort of knew calories in, calories out didn't work. And I was learning about metabolism. Hey, what we eat affects our metabolism. Gee, um, isn't that a, a, a wild idea? Mm. Uh, but that that was, you know, not – it was well known in the textbooks, 
But in clinical, uh, you know, in the clinical world, it was still calories in, calories out. It's that simple. And if you're still gaining weight, you're lying, you're eating more than uh, you think you are, or you're miscalculating or whatever. But, you know, mm. learning that there's a metabolic aspect of food, you know, was, was really significant. And then learning about heart rate and training intensity. And then the fact that we don't just burn calories when we exercise. Mm. And... People leave the last word out. Yeah, I burn a lot of calories. And, and I would say, calories of what? And they would just, you know, I was like the crazy guy around. Yeah. Like, he asked you weird questions. What, you know, well, we want to burn calories of fat. We want to bur not burn calories of sugar primarily because if, if we do that, we don't burn off our excess body fat. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, it was really, I don't think there was any big um, aha moment. Yeah. Um, I, I think I had that early on in the beginning of college when I, when I had, I sort of developed a passion to help people. That was an aha moment. And then I, I realized that tradition was just well ingrained in things like nutrition. And nutrition wasn't even called nutrition back then. It was biochemistry. Yeah. Were you always interested in it, Phil, like at I, that young age? I was, yeah. I was. I, I, another aha moment is when I was in school and I was in the middle of, a, you know, the cafeteria line getting my food and mm -hmm. I realized, hey, what do I have on my, on my tray? This is not real food. And I, I, I walked away and, and, I, and that was like a big moment for me. But, you know, the the along with the running boom, but the whole, certainly in the 50s, a lot of the marketing really was, was um, just big, hitting the, the, the housewife, you know, yes. who, who would always have a big container of sugar and a big yep. container of white flour, and everything you made had sugar and white flour in it. Yeah. it amazing. Yeah. I mean, tomato sauce, you know, it's like, because you know you you got a free cookbook uh, yeah, because yeah. You, you you sent in your name and now they're you know they're sending you stuff to remind you to use all this white flour and sugar and they did and um, it was difficult for me even in college to say this is what I want to do when I graduate because people need help with this and mm. and I, I was influenced by some people I remember um, uh, reading. When I first got into practice reading this article about marathoners and heart disease. Yes. And I said, well, oh, Jim this is Fix a was around that time, wasn't he? No, I, I the... worked with Jim Fix. And I, I, I mean, I, it, it's a sad story. Um, mm. Jim was, you know, was, was not willing to do the thing. He said, I have to do these hard runs because people expect it of me and I have to. But this, this was a scientific study. Mm. on marathon marathoners and heart disease and the guy's name was um tim noakes and that was the first time uh -huh. i heard of tim noakes and we've gotten to be good colleagues um ever since but but tim uh told me the story that he he wanted to present this at a conference and they wouldn't let him because marathon runners don't have heart problems and so he finally got, you know, pulled some strings and they said, okay, you can present it. But they gave him a slot during the coffee break. So, oh. um, 
But it was, you know, it was something I had been thinking about because I was seeing people who were runners who were, were you know, developing not just excess body fat, but mm. developing, uh, and not just physical injuries, but developing other uh, metabolic and cardiovascular problems. So it was a, you know, it was a, it was a combination of things that kind of got me going in the direction I was going in. And then all along the way, I, I, I still read the literature literally every day. And mm. um, there's always new um, things to learn and new uh, material to talk to colleagues about. So it's yeah. ongoing. Yeah. And Phil, as I understand it, you sort of, you started out with a practice that just got busier and busier with the local athletes. And then because of your work with these athletes, you then got other athletes sort of coming to you from other places and then expanded and it sort of blew up. And then you actually started traveling with some of your very well-known athletes, or at least in that, you know, in our sporting context, to help them with their sort of training. So you were like a training and a nutrition advisor, as opposed to being in clinic, helping a lot of people. Like, how did that actually happen? So have I like got all of the steps in there or... Yeah, kind of. I mean, I I started um, small. I started, um, you know, with a with an empty room, and you know, I mm. saw, I saw my aunt. She came in. Uh, she was my first patient, and um, oh. you know, and 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 then gradually, um, uh, some local runners who were injured. Everything was about injury, you know, in the yeah. beginning because that's all people could relate to. But what happened, and I was really fortunate because I had learned a lot of hands-on techniques in physiotherapy and biofeedback, and I was fortunately able to help people who had injuries very quickly. And when you do that, where before they, they didn't listen to me about training intensity or not eating junk food, now suddenly they thought, oh, this guy got rid of my pain really quick. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe he knows something I should listen to, you know. And it, but it was a local uh, phenomenon initially, and then gradually uh, more and more of the better local people. And I was in the New York City suburbs, so it was a, it was a big uh, running mecca, and mm. Boston was not far away. So it was, you know, that kind of environment. And um, gradually, and then I gradually got into other sports. I've literally worked in all sports. Mm. And, you know, as the, as the better athletes um, see what you do, they say, you know, you should come with me to my event especially the big the big events yeah and and help me in preparation and help me afterwards in the recovery process and um and that was a lot of fun and i think it was uh, rewarding it was helpful i sort of had to you know i didn't i didn't have a lot of time like mm. i had when i was in my in my clinic or, or when I had, uh, uh, you know, somebody who would fly in for three days and I had three days to work with them. Well, now, you know, we were at a race and the race was tomorrow and you better figure out how to, you know, fix some gait irregularity rather okay. quickly because we don't have time. And so it was, you know, it was, um, you know, they call it being in practice because we practice on people. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, what yeah. it's all about. Yeah. And, um, and so that was, that was a lot of fun. It's interesting. I um I just 
you know, your method is obviously it's been around for decades now and it's followed by tens of thousands of people use the math method. And one of my good mates actually just ran past me yesterday. He's been using the math method over the last six months. He sort of dedicated himself to it and he's got a new half marathon PB with his um, heart rate being under 131 and and it is amazing and we do park run and he did sub 20 using the math method so that must be so rewarding for you to even hear these stories now sure it is it is and and what what happened early on is is I started um, writing articles because I wanted to share some of the stuff and and that turned into books and 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 sure when you hear about somebody who read your article or read your book and they did this that and that and now they're they're better it's it's really re- rewarding it's it's what it's what i went through you know in school all those mm. terrible years of you know pain and suffering <laughs> um <laughs> But it was the passion I had. That's what I wanted to do. I still have that passion, and I, I approach it um, from a different angle, um, which is mostly writing and doing these kinds of podcasts. I have music as a passion too, and and that's something that that has been really, uh, which came later in life, that has been really rewarding. But I still have the passion to help people, and it isn't so much, you know, running a personal best. It's improving your quality of life and becoming mm. healthier and becoming more fit. And as you become more fit, you can run those personal bests or mm. perform at your best, whether you're um, a student or an athlete or an executive. Mm. You know, and I'm thinking about Mark Allen. I was just reading something about him a couple of days ago and how, you know, the method that he used in his training all of those years ago is sort of as what he credits to him still being a healthy athlete at his age now which what it might be early 60s I believe or or something like that so was it difficult to get those really high-end athletes to buy into the method Phil run slow race fast you know that whole you know, it just seems so counterintuitive, I suppose. It was very difficult in the beginning, um, and I lost some people. I had a I had a guy who came in, and he was just a complete wreck. Mm. And I said, you're a complete wreck. He had these physical injuries. He was exhausted, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, you know, I'm running the Boston Marathon next week. Mm. And I said, well... W- Either we have a lot of work to do or you might think about skipping it. And it, it was a thing with sponsors. And I said, okay, look, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll, I'll get you in as good a shape um, as we can get. And then you come back and we'll, we'll look at long-term training and, and diet and stress reduction, et cetera, et cetera. And he ended up Doing the marathon, he was second place overall. Mm, he was very amazing. happy. He was a PR for him. He came back a week later, and um, you know, I started talking about all these things. We're going to measure this and measure that, and we'll go to the track and evaluate your gait and do this. and And he called me a couple of days later, and he said, I, "He said I can't train slow." <laughs> and I never saw him again. He ended up retiring. A young young guy. Hadn't yeah. even reached his um, marathon peak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in terms of age, I think he was only in his late twenties. 
Oh, mate. You know, there so, must be so many athletes like that out there. Oh, there, there's a lot. And, and so, I, you know, I lost some, and but it, it, it was hard in the beginning. And as I developed a reputation, it was a lot easier yeah. because people were, were expecting it. You know, they'd yeah. say, oh, I, I guess I have to run slow now. I yeah. said, well, no, you have to run at this heart rate. Yeah. And you might think it's slow initially. It may not be, but you might think it's slow initially. But then you're going to complain that you have to run too fast. Yeah. And, you know, that'll be in a few months. But, you know, whatever happens, happens. The goal is to get you as healthy as possible and improve your fitness as much as possible. And and so it was. It, it, it certainly got easier. And today it's uh, it, it's easier when people read about it, um, especially if you hear from a, another person who's had success or you read an article about someone who had success with it and but it's still it's still difficult because you've got that system one sizzle yeah. out there you've got the headlines in the running magazine you know all you have to do is these you know these hard no pain no gain workouts do three of them and you'll run your best marathon mm. um or whatever they have. I mean, these are these are real things. Um, uh, just do it. You know, it, it's 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 no pain, no gain. Go for the burn. The old um, the old coaching slogan. Uh, you have to train fast to race fast. Yes. Um, and you know th those things uh, are still around. This this. You know, it's interesting because it's it's the younger people, those under 30 tend to be more vulnerable for that. And those over 30, you know, now have accumulated enough stress to where they start thinking twice, you know, maybe there's a better way. Well, if you think about it, all the young people I know are like completely bulletproof. Like they, they are the ones that can do the hard training, eat the rubbish food, stay up all night get up the next morning, go for that hard, long run, and then repeat. And it's, you know, I think Mark Allen also said something about his earlier training of do more faster, and it only works for those whose genetics were, were going to help override the lunacy of their training um, <laughs> and take them on to great things for a certain period of time. <laughs> um, Phil, yep. in addition, obviously, so... When I think about the math method, it really sort of speaks to the art and science of training and nutrition because, you know, you developed it, as I understand, from observations from your clinical experience. It wasn't that you could go to textbooks to go, oh, so if you go, you know, now we can go to textbooks because, you know, it's got your, you know, your work informs a lot of, you know, what we, uh, people recommend. But when you developed it, it just came from your clinical observations, did it? Yeah, it was. It was. It was that um, experimentation with, with yeah. athletes. You know, I mean, I I, um, I would joke with uh, Stu Middleman, who who was an ultra marathoner who had all, all kinds of world and and national records in um, the hundred miles and above the six day race, and we were on a six day race. We were we were in a six day race and it was on a, a track, a four hundred mm. meter track, and all these runners are just going round and round. And uh, some media person was talking to me and and he said, "Well, what's it like?" You know, I said, "Well, I I watch Stu, I watch his gait, I I listen to you know uh, the things he says and 
and I l listen for his his footsteps as he goes by. It all is very meaningful, and it's kind of like having a rat in a laboratory. You're watching them run on this wheel, and mm. you know at some point you kind of reach and take them out. And um, I didn't cut Stu open, but but we we experiment, and that's how we learn uh, about better ways to do things. And every mm. field does that. So yeah, it was. Um, it was a lot of it was clinical observation, but much of that was measuring. I was a measuring mm. fanatic. I wanted mm. to measure this and measure that. If I could measure something objectively and then do this and then remeasure, I could get some objectivity out of these clinical observations. So it, it all kind of gets thrown into the pod and, you know, you, you eventually hopefully get something uh, successful out of it. Mm. And then, Phil, of course, alongside the math method, um, it's the dietary change as well. So did they come together when you were speaking to your athletes like Mark Allen? Like, so what, is, what, is, what was the process that you used when you like, were first introduced to an athlete and said, okay, this is how it's going to be? Yeah, the, it, it, it's interesting. I smile because this is what I'm asked when somebody interviews me about my music. Um, oh. Does does the the music come first or the words? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it all comes out because it's all one big thing. Yeah, they're not. It's not a, a mechanistic issue, and mm. so with me in training athletes, it was all one big thing. Uh, mm -hmm. There are different components of it. And so, yeah, we look at the heart rate because we want to make sure your aerobic system is training. Uh, and to do that, we want to be at a lower level of intensity because that will assure you burn fat. And what will even assure you burn fat better is if you eat correctly. And mm. so, everything, you know, it's all tied together, including the stress. Stress uh, can impair Everything, like I said earlier, it, it's really the, the, the issue. And all of what I work with, the diet, the, you know, specific nutrients uh, when that's necessary, the exercise, um, heart rates, the aerobic training, the anaerobic training, all of these things uh, are really different kinds of stress. And mm. we want to um, make sure the body adapts to the stress, if we don't adapt to the stress, the athlete gets hurt and mm. the athlete never reaches their human potential. Whether their goal is to lose body fat or just be more energetic, feel younger, or uh, win the Ironman, it's all really the same thing. Yeah. And how did you come up with the 21-day test? Because I you know, I believe it's twenty, or is it only fourteen days? Sure, fourteen days. The the two week test. There you go, two week test. Yeah, what I was doing in the beginning, in the very beginning, I was saying to people, um, these foods, these junk mm. foods, and I don't, I don't think the term junk food, the, the the name junk food, had come out yet. That was like eighty three that one of the nutrition. Um, organizations came up with the, the name for junk food. But yeah. I said, these foods need to be eliminated. Processed foods, um, including sugar and all, all this stuff. And for a lot of people, they could not just eliminate it. 
and and I said, okay, look, just start start with all the white flower products, and then yeah. you know we'll go and 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 do this. And it was a long, painful thing for them and for me because I'm I'm you know waiting for them to change their metabolism, but they're hanging on with a few unhealthy yeah. products, and sometimes it doesn't take much. But I but I realized at the same time that if they understood what it felt like to not eat sugar if they understood what healthy eating was and if you if you kick out the really bad food within 2 3 days your metabolism starts changing within a few more mm. days your gut starts functioning better within a few more days you get more energy and by 2 weeks you're you're feeling what it's like to eat healthy and so I didn't want them to hear me say, this is what you're going to feel like when you stop eating this stuff. I wanted them to feel it. And I, I originally, um, I think I originally had it for 10 days and mm -hmm. I realized, well, this might not be enough. And then I read a really good study that showed way back, you know, in, in, in 79 or 80 that eating lower amounts of carbohydrate w would um, increase ketones and and do some other things and it was really and it said it, it will take it'll take uh, up to 14 days and I thought oh then that's what I should do instead of 10 I'll I'll, I'll do a two-week test mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. the idea that it's a test it wasn't deceiving but it was okay I could do this for two weeks yeah. Gives a light and, at the end and, of the tunnel for people. And and so, yeah. And what was sad is that some people said, okay, my two weeks are up. I'm going to add some things back like sugar. No, no, no. You can't add junk food back, but I mm. need sugar. You said I have to personalize my my eating and my brain wants sugar. It's an instinct. I, I mm. you know, I need sugar. Yes, you need sugar because you're addicted. So it, it was... Um, you know, it was a little bit of, again, experimentation. We settled on two weeks. And two weeks was a really, if they were honest in their processing initially, the metabolic effects were dramatic. The hormonal effects yeah. were dramatic. In fact, that's where I discovered that um, I had a little following back then for being the, the guy to go see if, if you were a woman and not fertile. Because I had a couple of women who were trying to lose weight and they were on the two-week test and they got pregnant and they said, gee, we've been trying to get pregnant for several years. Amazing. Oh, well, that's interesting. And I, and I, you know, you go back to the textbooks and you say, well, let's see, if we lower insulin, what yeah. is that going to do for these hormones? And you start putting two and two together. And mm. um, so it's, 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 it's interesting how profound some of these changes can be. Yeah, and I, I really like how you sort of describe it as they get the opportunity to to feel different and feel better. And often I think people don't appreciate how they really feel until they get until they take those things out to then reintroduce. And it's like, oh, I never realized how tired I was after lunch until I was no longer tired after lunch. And then I, yeah. you know, had a high carb lunch and what do you know, lethargic. And I think feel like, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, it's, it is, you know, people being honest with how food affects them, but actually also acknowledging that it's a, it can be a long process to make those 
habitual changes and they have to override that system one and that's a discipline like and it's a habit to override that sort of system one decision and that takes time that takes that could take six months it can take years to sort of um change those brain patterns i don't know it's it you're right it's it's interesting to see what takes how long so yeah you know originally they're they're doing two weeks and okay two weeks i can handle that but but now they can't go back to junk food so now they're going to see how much natural carbohydrate they eat how much Mm. fat how much protein and um uh, and it's the carbohydrate issue that's always the problem, the potential yeah. problem. And so in the beginning, you miss bread. You want bread. How could you mm. not eat bread with, with uh, you know, your meal? You don't eat it. That's how you don't eat it. You just don't eat it. Um, but there's an addiction feature. And mm. so you have to go through this. Um, and, it, and it can take a few days to go through this terrible withdrawal from sugar. But the, even after two weeks, you want sugar, but you can override that. Like you say, you, you think of the, you know, the mechanisms in the brain and how I could, I could do this. And especially when you feel so good. Mm. And then if you do cheat or if you do experiment and you eat too much of something, you, you are more aware of how bad yeah. you feel. So yeah. that helps. But then there's getting rid of your sweet tooth. How long does that take? And it could take months, literally months. Mm. And what I do is I tell people to get some raw cacao, unsweetened, 100% cacao, and eat a piece of it. Mm. And if you have to spit it out, you know you haven't changed those taste buds, those sweet taste buds that are impairing your, they're not impairing, they're amplifying, well, they're impairing your bitter taste. So anything yeah. bitter is really amplified and you can eat cacao. And, but after a few months you can, and then you start liking it. But then there's another deep in the brain, there's this emotional thing where you still hang on to this thing. And I refer to it because this was my experience of you walk past, you're in some city, you walk past a bakery mm. and that smell and you just have to look and it all comes back. Yeah. Except you're strong enough now, but the reaction is still there. And for me, it took years, literally. Oh, does it actually go away? Because it hasn't gone like, it, but it, then I'm, It goes you know. away. Yeah. I'm really offended by, by the smell of that. that oh. Com- Kind of my system over one is, I, I was going to say, my system one is uh, is um, feeling sorry for you, feeling offended. <laughs> I just get pleasure <laughs> from that smell. <laughs> but continue. Yeah, it's, it's really, um, and, and part of it is the taste buds because you'll yeah. have, um, you know, you'll make something that you occasionally make, um, some, some cacao with uh, some some coconut in it and some peppermint oil and and you know you're gonna you're gonna bring it to some um house concert um and so you you put a little honey in it otherwise nobody eats it and you taste it and you say oh wow that's way too sweet and you say well i'll i'll bring it anyway and 
people, a lot of people can't even eat it because it's, they don't think there's any sweetening in it. Yeah. But it's really, it, get, it gets offensive uh, because your brain has changed and, mm. you know, this is, this is um, it, it, it's sad what they have done to us. They being the politicians that allow junk food to persist. They being the, the industry that has made an overfat world and, and brought us COVID and chronic disease mm. um, because we are all... And our parents were all influenced um, at very early ages. I was, um, my first food was sugar water. Yeah. Yep. You know, and I pretty much, that was my diet for, you know, 17 years. Yeah. Phil, what do you eat now? What's your diet like? I eat what I've figured, and I, I'm, 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 cha- I'm changing regularly, not mm. from day to day or month to month. But in the from year to year, I, I you know I tweak uh, myself along the way. I eat all organic food or uh, food that's from a, a, a local farm uh, when I can f- find them, which I, I can now. Um, so I eat meats. I eat eggs. I have five eggs a day typically. Mm-hmm. I eat cheese if I can get again uh, the the healthy cheese from mm-hmm. uh, Jersey cow milk. Mm. I um I consume heavy cream and sour cream vegetables leafy vegetables and salad and blueberries are are pretty easy to get it's hard to get stro- when you're used to growing your own mm. everything it's really hard and and I was used to growing my own until um a, a couple of years ago but um uh blueberries uh of course cacao uh, of course, um, really delicious coffee, um, red wine. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these are foods that, all of those actually, are foods that are very high in antioxidants, yeah. uh, different types of antioxidants that are really important for people to to have. And they're also foods that increase the levels of ketones. Yeah. It's interesting as you describing your food list um, or the foods that you eat. It all sounds so delicious. Whereas, of course, if people read something like, oh, you've got to pull all that flour and that sugar out of your diet, and suddenly people are like, oh, well, what, what is there left to eat? Phil, what is yeah. your thoughts? And I know, I'm sorry, I know we need to wrap up soon, but I just, I'm really curious to know, you know, we talk a lot about carbohydrate and the impact that has on kind of metabolic health and is, you know, the underlying sort of driver of a lot of these problems. What about processed oils? So, I mean, to me, they are, if you're eating processed refined oils, you probably, they, I mean, they come as packaged up in processed food. When you get rid of the process, when you get rid of the junk food, you're getting rid of a lot of those um, vegetable oils, those omega-6 oils that are mm. in the processed foods because they're cheap mm. and they have a long shelf life. So they use um, they use them in the processing of or the packaging of, of food. But uh, unfortunately, these products began to hit the market way back in the 50s. Mm. And, um, and by the end of the 50s, margarine was uh, developed. And in fact, I have some food science textbooks, two, two textbooks that 
say, uh, you know, there's there's this new product, margarine, that's being developed, and by all appearances, it looks like it's the the most unhealthy thing people could eat, and Amazing. blah blah blah. And so, the fact that it was devastating from a health standpoint was was not new, except the marketing of it was so intense that it was. Hey, we, the food industry, made margarine to protect your hearts. We want to help people with heart disease. We want to, you know, it's, it, and it was just like, and so what's happened is the, the oils uh, have gone the same route, except they're still recommending it today. Mm. So all the omega-6 oils, peanut, soy, safflower, canola, corn, um, all those vegetable vegetable oils, they're unhealthy. They promote chronic inflammation, much like sugar does, mm. very similar part of the metabolism of, of fats. They're also very um, unstable, so uh, they, they, um, you, you run the risk of oxidative stress. But when, when people are given the alternative, you know, don't get rid of all your oils, your omega-6 oils, and instead use coconut oil, butter, lard. And, you know, by now they've started screaming, oh, lard, what a wonderful cooking fat. You know, <laughs> yeah, coconut yeah. oil is great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but I thought coconut oil was the worst oil. Well, where did you hear that from? Well, I heard it on the news. <laughs> yeah. I remember being surprised to look at the uh, fatty acid composition of lard and seeing that it, it was about, you know, in, in my head it was white. This was many, many years ago. It was white. It was solid. Surely it was all saturated fat. Of course it's not. You know, it might be, I think it's 30 or 40% saturated fat and then it's monounsaturated and poly like it's, but you're right that um, the whole, the, the idea that eggs are bad for us pervades even now, that cholesterol in food is bad for us. Even in public health messaging that has, you know, largely been removed um, in the public sort of um, space, it's, you know, that people still believe that. And yeah, they, they've eliminated the, 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 the cholesterol, they've eliminated the saturated fat warnings, and they, at least they have mm. here and in many other places. Um, I'm guessing they're going to eliminate the sodium thing soon because. Yeah. Um, we're taught not to think with our brains. Yeah. Okay, so does salt cause high blood pressure? No, it doesn't cause high blood pressure, but it can worsen high blood pressure in about a third yeah. of the people with hypertension. Yeah. Get rid of the hypertension by getting off the junk food and your yep. insulin levels will come down along with your blood pressure mm -hmm. uh, and then sodium won't be a problem. There are more people with sodium uh, deficiencies yeah, actually, the the number of people that have hyponatremia, mm, at least increased. in the U.S., is is five times the number of people who have heart attacks. Yeah, interesting. That's a lot of people. Yeah, anything to do with the uh, excess body fat that they're carrying? Well, chronic inflammation uh, will yeah. will worsen that. It's a stress problem, and and the presence of excess body fat is a huge stress, metabolic stress. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the hyponatremia, we see it in athletes, high training athletes who mm. become overtrained and their hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access can't keep up with the stress and mm. they start losing sodium uh, rapidly. And 
it's sad to see the outcome of, of some of those situations. Water toxicity is is um, one of the associated problems that you see because these people tend to be thirsty and they drink a lot more water, which just worsens the hyponatremia. It, yeah, it's so interesting. And if I think back to just what you were describing with the processed oils and their instability, all in the supermarket, you just see those plastic clear bottles of $3 salad oil and vegetable oil and cooking oil. And it's so cheap and it's so exposed to light and like the worst it's the nature, possible. Yeah. It's the nature of, of, of junk food. It's cheap. It's yeah. readily available. They, they have bought so much um, shelf space in the stores that it's hard to find the healthy products. And, um, you know, they're, they're doing all the right things, the junk food companies, in, from a, a marketing standpoint. Oh, this is um, $3.00. This, this free. container of and it's cholesterol free of corn oil, peanut oil, but this littler jar of coconut oil is three times. You know, and the, the bottom line is, it's not more expensive to eat healthy. Mm. If you start comparing, oh well, this this product is you know much cheaper than that product. That doesn't mean eating healthy is more expensive. That one product may be, but you shouldn't be eating it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's that's such an interesting mind shift for some people because I feel like they don't recognize that if they eat in a way that satisfies their hunger, that actually nourishes them, so their body isn't crying out for nutrients, that'll actually off that they'll spend a lot less in these products that they don't even, aren't even aware they're buying. They forget about the muffins that they buy because their you know, blood sugar's dropping or they forget about the chocolate in the gas station because, you know, on the way home because they're just actually not, at that point in time, it's a bit of an emergency buy which they're not even thinking about when we're talking to them about their diet. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it's like saying a, a, a malnutrition Based diet is cheaper than a healthy diet. Yeah, yeah. You want to think that way, really? Yeah. Um, but that's that's sort of how people think. I can't afford to 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 buy these healthy things. Well, if you if you look around at the availability of foods, and you you don't choose the m- most ridiculously expensive exotic vegetables. And you stick with the basics, you know, plus you, you will be eating less food. I mean, people, you know, when I, when I see people go down on the carbohydrates and, and start eating in a healthier way, the amount of calories they consume is 20, 25%, 30% less sometimes. Yeah. Because now their metabolism is more efficient and they don't need as much uh, nutrient. Literally, they don't need as much nutrient. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Phil, do you know I've got like six pages of notes, and I think I talked about two of them, two, <laughs> two, two little points of them, because you were such a wealth of information, and your passion, Thanks. like the fact that you were still passionate about this, dare I say, almost fifty years 
since beginning um, is just a true testament to what you've actually given to the field. So, um, and I always look forward to seeing your articles. I saw you just popped one up yesterday, in fact, about the aging athlete, which is something which we haven't even gone into, which I would love to talk to you about at another time. Um, so Phil, thank you for your time. Any final thoughts actually, because I, sometimes I talk about diet and I talk about public health and I just feel a little bit, morose isn't the right word but a little bit sort of like is there any hope you know like i don't know yeah i i i don't understand but people sometimes um you know when they talk among themselves uh, about me uh, they hear you know and i it it always comes back to me Uh, people like telling (laughs) me things i don't know why um you know people say does he ever enjoy eating a meal? Does he does he ever like exercise, working out? You know, nobody has more fun than I do. Yeah. I, I love eating food. I love my food. I taste every morsel. Um, and when you know how healthy it is for you, it's even better. Uh, working out, I mean, I was out um, hiking through the woods um, in between the, the bad rainstorms today, just being in the woods in that incredibly mm. green forest was, uh, I mean, it was like a, a meditation like you've never meditated before. And every, every workout's like that. That's you awesome. Know, it's not a routine. So mm. I, I have a lot of fun. That's really a very important thing that people need to think about is life should be fun. Absolutely. And so maybe it's just up to us to figure out how to get there in the best and, and how to experience what you've just described. And being healthy is a large part of that as well. Yeah, you can't have fun if you're not healthy, and you can't have fun, uh, and all you have to do is look at your parents, your grandparents, your your great aunts, and you know, look at the 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 people who age, and uh, the ones who um, are not having any more fun. That's yeah. that's really really sad, and the fact is, it's preventable. Yeah. Dare I say it, Phil, it's sadder still to see people younger than you not having any fun for the same oh, reasons. I, I'm, 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 I'm here. You know, I always get messages from people when an athlete dies. This athlete died oh. the other day, 53 years old, you know, former, former pro athlete. Mate. What, what, a, what, a, what a tragedy. It, yeah. Preventable. These are preventable, you know, chronic diseases, preventable, and it's up to us to prevent them. Yeah. Well, we can't rely on the powers that be to do it. So you're right. It is. Certainly not. It's all in our hands. Yeah. Phil, as always, thank you so much. And uh, Thanks, Mickey. This was fun. Awesome. And I will link to your um, very um, comprehensive website. You've got so many free resources out there for people um, and link to things in our podcast um, show notes as well. And look, look forward to doing this sometime in the future again. Sure. Likewise, this this is you know I I I, I live for these things. Thanks, Phil. All right, team. I hope you enjoyed that. And look, I have heard Phil talk about these topics for several years now, and I never tire of listening to 
him talk about the science and the reasoning behind it and his clinical experience. And I just feel like the more that you sort of hear stories like that, the more compelling it is to give it a go if you're really new to this sort of space of low carbohydrate, optimal health and performance. And it is, it can be such a super balanced approach if you do it properly. And I really enjoy listening to Phil talk about his successes with it over the years. Okay, so next week I bring back on my mate Cliff. This is another person you know that I can't get enough of listening to. And Cliff and I have a really good old conversation about fasting. And this was another one that was actually recorded again early on in our lockdown here in Auckland but I mean let's face it the way that we talk about fasting that stuff is uh, timeless anyway so that will change as our understanding and the information changes but um, from here and over the last few months that hasn't changed that much so that is next week on Wikipedia. and until then team you can find me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can sign up to any number of plans related to fat loss, keto longevity plan, just really good old nutrition, or have a consultation and tweak your diet to better suit your needs. So all of that information is on my website. And until next week, have a great week. See you later.